Grab your Bibles and turn to Galatians chapter 3. We'll look at verses 23 through 29 today. And let's pray once again as we begin. Father, we've been singing that there's no one like you. And that is true because only you could come up with the plan of redemption. In eternity past, you had decided to gather your elect people from every nation, race, tribe, and tongue, and to gather them around your throne where they could glorify you and enjoy you forever. Only you could come up with the gospel. And we cling to it today as our hope. Many different people from different backgrounds, cultures, and races are gathered here today as the people of God because of the work of your spirit in our heart. And I do ask, Father, today that you would grant repentance to those that are here that have never turned from their sins and trusted in you. Would you cause them to see how much they need Jesus and may he become their treasure. As we look at your word now, Father, would you open our eyes to see wonderful things out of your word. Open our eyes by the power of the Spirit. Enlighten our, our minds and help us to see Jesus once again. We ask in his name, amen. Sometimes the truth, the ugly truth, though it stings, can be the vehicle for change in our lives. This is clearly seen in Flannery O'Connor's short story entitled Revelation, in which she describes how the truth actually did set someone free. The story centers around Mrs. Ruby Turpin, who, in her own estimation, is a good, upstanding Christian woman. Ruby is thankful to Jesus that she is not white trash or poor, or of another race. Ruby Turpin is unaware that she is the southern counterpart to the religious Pharisees in the Bible that she loves to read. But the ugly truth will confront Ruby in the waiting room at a doctor's office. The ugly truth will come from the mouth of a fat, ugly college girl with bad acne named Mary Grace. Ruby engages in conversation with several people who are all waiting to see the doctor. Through her words and thoughts, she reveals that she is better than other people. Ruby is thankful to Jesus that she is not white trash. Ruby is thankful to Jesus that she's not poor. Ruby is thankful to Jesus that she is not of another race. Completely unaware of her self-righteousness, she exclaims to the others in the waiting room, if it's one thing I am, it's grateful. When I think who all I could have been besides myself and what all I got, a little of everything and a good disposition besides, I just feel like shouting, thank you, Jesus, for making everything the way it is. It could have been different. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Jesus, thank you. And as soon as these words leave her mouth, a book thrown by Mary Grace, the fat girl with acne, hits Ruby just above the eye. Then the fat girl pounces on Ruby and begins choking her. People pull the girl off Ruby and their plan is to take her to a mental institution because they declare her a lunatic. They pull the girl off Ruby 
And as they are dragging her away, Mary Grace says to Ruby, go back to Hades where you came from, you old warthog. Ruby returns home startled that anyone could have anything against her. She's a good person. She has manners and a good disposition. How could anyone hate her? She is nice to the slaves that she owns. She works hard and serves at the church. She's not a bad person. But then Ruby begins having this conversation with God. And then Ruby begins to see that the encounter with Mary Grace was a message from God. And as Ruby goes to hose down the pigs on her farm, she has an epiphany. She sees a vision of people making their way to heaven. Flannery O'Connor describes the scene. A vast horde of souls were rumbling toward heaven. There were whole companies of white trash, clean for the first time in their lives, and bands of Negroes in white robes, and battalions of freaks and lunatics, shouting and clapping and leaping like frogs. And bringing up the end of the procession was a tribe of people whom she recognized at once as those who, like herself and her husband Claude, had always had a little of everything and the God-given wit to use it right. She leaned forward to observe them closer. They were marching behind the others with great dignity, accountable as they always had been for good order and common sense and respectable behavior. They alone were singing on key, yet she could see by their shocked and altered faces that even their virtues were being burned away. It's a picture of the first becoming last and the last becoming first. We might be tempted to scoff at this story, but we must listen to Flannery O'Connor because she is brilliant. As is typical of her writing, she purposely highlights distorted and grotesque images because we, her audience, have come to see them as natural. That's why she once said, writers will have, in these times, the sharpest eye for the grotesque, for the perverse, and for the unacceptable. To the hard of hearing, you shout, and for the almost blind, you draw large and startling figures. With brutal, in-your-face storytelling, Flannery O'Connor wants us to see just how deep Sin runs in our veins. Flannery's short story, Revelation, lives up to its name because it reveals us as needy sinners, even when we think we are dignified and not as bad as the freaks and lunatics of our world. And that's exactly what the law does. God's law shows us that we are sinners. The character Mary Grace functions like the law when she throws the book at Ruby Turpin and calls her a warthog from hell. The ugly girl with bad acne reveals just how ugly self-righteous Mrs. Mary Turpin is. And that's exactly what God's law does. It exposes us as spiritual warthogs from hell, if you will. 
God's law shows us just how ugly we are. But the gospel comes in to reassure us that though we are warthogs and white trash and freaks and lunatics, Jesus welcomes us with open arms even when we sing off key. That's the gospel, the good news that Jesus loves us in spite of the ugly truth of our ugliness. The Christian life is not about what we do for God, but, what about, but about what Jesus has done for sinners like us. That's what grace is all about. God's grace justifies sinners like us. The battalions of freaks and lunatics gathered here today. Remember the context of Galatians. A group of false teachers had infiltrated the Galatian churches and were teaching these predominantly Gentile churches that they had to become Jewish in order to be saved. They pushed circumcision and the dietary laws and the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament. These false teachers, who were called Judaizers, were trying to turn these Gentile Christians into Jews. They were trying to divide the church based on racial distinctions. So it is against this backdrop and against this false gospel that Paul writes to tell the Galatian churches that God welcomes the freaks and lunatics of this world into his family. God welcomes the freaks and the lunatics of this world into his family. And that's good news because some of you are freaks and lunatics. And that's exactly how the Jewish people saw Gentiles. To Jewish people, Gentiles were dirty, filthy dogs. In their self-righteousness, Jews avoided Gentiles. Gentiles were the outcasts, the freaks, the lunatics. They were unclean pigs. They were like warthogs to the Jews. So Paul is simply rehearsing the gospel with the Galatians here. That God the Father welcomes freaks as his sons and daughters when they have faith in his son. And isn't that we are? Isn't that what we are? Aren't we freaks when you look at the holiness of God and you look at our sinfulness? Aren't we by nature then freaks because we're in such contrast to the holiness of God? God adopts the down and out as his sons and daughters. God adopts the rejected as his sons and daughters. And God adopts the self-righteous and the goody two-shoes as his sons and daughters. God adopts anyone who simply comes and says, forgive me, I trust in Jesus. So see, there's hope for every single person here. Now look at verses 23 through 24 and hear the word of the Lord. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Paul is talking here about how Jews like himself used to relate 
to God. Israel was under God's law and it functioned like a guardian. The idea behind the word here, guardian, is that the law functioned like a babysitter. The law was like a a babysitter who was in charge of watching children, watching over them, correcting them. And in Paul's day, a guardian was like a custodian who watched over a child in the house. Usually the guardian was a slave who was in charge of one of his master's sons. The guardian would care for the son, watch over him, correct him, teach him, and guide him until he reached adolescence. So Paul is saying that the law was like a guardian or a babysitter that watched over Israel and guided them and corrected them. The law supervised every aspect of an Israelite's life. The law supervised Israel as sons. This then caused many of them, like the Pharisees in Jesus' day, to believe that they were good sons because they were keeping the law. And Gentiles were filthy freaks, unclean pigs, wart hogs. Now, the law is good. Even though it exposes us as sinners, the law is good. Scripture affirms that over and over. God's law that he gave to Israel is a good law. And it has a specific use and function. I mentioned last week that John Calvin and the Reformers refer to the three uses of the law. First, the first use of the law is that the law reveals God's holiness and reveals our sinfulness and the fact that we're lawbreakers and it should cause us to despair and then to drive us to Jesus the Savior, to Jesus the Redeemer. Because we need someone to save us because we've broken God's law. So the law first comes to reveal God's holiness and show us that we're sinners so that we'll run to Jesus. The second use of the law is that the law restrains evil. The law is good because it sets rules in place that restrain evil. For instance, you shall not murder is good because it restrains most people from murdering. So the law is good. You shall not steal is good because you don't want people stealing your things, right? In ancient Israel, you didn't want someone stealing your donkey and you don't want somebody stealing your car today. Romans 1 and 2 says that God's law is written upon our hearts. So every human being knows that stealing is wrong. Every human being knows that murder is wrong. But some people still do those things, and they are those people who have God's law written on their heart, and they suppress that truth, as Paul says in Romans 1. They drown out that truth, even though that law is written on their heart. That's the second use of the law. It restrains evil in the land. The third use of the law is that the law shows believers how to live lives that please God. We are saved by faith apart from works of the law. But once we are saved, we go back to God's law in order to live lives that please him. God's law shows us the good works that God has planned for us. Ephesians 2 says that God has planned good works for us to walk in. The law shows us what those good works are that God has planned for us to walk in. And so when Jesus says in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, this is what he is talking about. We keep the law 
we keep his commandments not to earn his favor, but precisely because we already have his favor. So the law is good. It is never to be used as a means to gain favor or gain right standing with God. God's law shows us God's holiness, shows us our sin so that we cry out for Jesus. And then God's law restrains evil in the land. And the third use is that it shows us how to live lives that please God. God's law then was a supervisor always watching over Israel. It guided what they ate. We've talked about this in weeks past. They couldn't eat bacon. The pig was unclean. So when you smelled your Gentile friend from Moabite grilling bratwurst, you smelled that coming over the fence, the law was there and said, you can't eat that. A pig is unclean. It's off limits. The law was there like a supervisor, a babysitter, always correcting, always leading, always guiding. Or when your wife was on her monthly period and she sat in your chair, you know the chair that you men sit in? Well, she sits down to watch Oprah one day, but it's her monthly period. And therefore, when she sits in your chair, she makes it unclean. So you come home from work, exhausted, plop down in your chair, ready to put your feet up. And she says, oh, honey, don't sit there. I started my period today, and I sat in your chair earlier. It's unclean, and now you're unclean. And then according to Leviticus 15, you would be unclean, and you would have to wash your clothes. You'd be unclean until evening. You'd have to wash your clothes, and you'd have to take a bath. See, the law was there at every moment supervising Israel's life. Now, I think some Israelites understood the three uses of the law and they responded appropriately. But others became self-righteous and started thinking to themselves, look how good I am. I can keep the law. I'm a good person. I'm a good son. The Jews saw themselves as good sons and the Gentiles were unclean pigs. Their self-righteousness blinded them. I like what Jack Miller says about self-righteousness. I may not have the odor of whiskey on my breath, but is not the smell of my self-righteousness much more offensive to God? People who thought this way, like the Pharisees in Jesus' day, and like Mrs. Ruby Turpin in Flannery O'Connor's short story, these people failed to see that the law was given to drive us to Jesus so that we would receive the promises by faith and not by our works. The law imprisons every human being so that they will see that righteousness, justification, being made right and declared right by a holy God is received by faith in Jesus' work for us and not our works for him. And that's why Paul says in verse 24, So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. The Judaizers were telling the Galatians that they had to come back under the Mosaic law and be circumcised in order to be justified, in order to be welcomed into God's family as sons and daughters. Paul is saying that it is by faith in Jesus' work for us that we are justified. Paul is saying to these Gentiles, God welcomes the freaks and lunatics of this world into his family. 
And Paul has no problem saying this over and over and over again. So he will reiterate it one more time. Look at verses 25 and 26. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. The Galatian churches, which were predominantly made up of Gentiles, did not need to become Jews in order to be welcome into God's family. All they had to do was trust in Jesus' work for them. The Judaizers, however, wanted the Galatians to come back under the law and let it be their guardian and let it be their babysitter and their supervisor. And Paul is telling them, all you need to do is trust in Jesus' work for you and you will be adopted into God's family as sons and daughters. I love how Ravi Zacharias describes it. Jesus described the moral law as a mirror You can look at a mirror and find out that your face is dirty, but you don't go and rub your face on the mirror to clean it. Jesus described the moral law as a mirror. You can look at a mirror and find out that your face is dirty, but you don't go and rub your face on the mirror to clean it. The Judaizers were saying to the Galatians, let the law be your babysitter. Do it, keep it, obey it. Do it, keep it, obey it, so that God will accept you. And Paul is saying, let the law be a mirror to show you your sin. But don't go and rub your face on the mirror and expect the mirror to clean your face because that's what Jesus is for. God welcomes the freaks and lunatics of this world into his family. God welcomes the outsiders, Gentiles, which is most of us here. God welcomes the outsiders, Gentiles, into his family as sons and daughters. And he gives them a new identity when they trust in Jesus. For any Jew or any Gentile that trusts in Jesus, they get a new identity. Look at verse 27. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Our identity has changed. We are sons and daughters of the king because we are united with him, united with Jesus. Those who trust in Christ, whether Jew or Gentile, whether freak or goody two-shoes, we are all full-fledged sons and daughters of God. And the sign of this is our baptism. Paul says that when we were baptized, we put on Christ. He became our clothing, if you will. Our new clothing indicates our new status. We have a new identity. Our new clothing indicates our new status. Maybe this picture will help you. Back when I worked at Starbucks, we had a program called the Coffee Master. I don't know if they still have it or not, but in order to become a coffee master, you had to take all of these classes, read all of these books and things, and basically know everything about coffee, from how Starbucks grew the coffee, dried it out, harvested where it went, to what place. So you had to know everything there was to know about coffee. You had to be able to tell people when they came in, tell me about Ethiopia Sadamo, and you would tell them that it has these lemony 
notes, and you should tell them that they should pair it with an ice lemon pound cake, and that'll bring out uh, the notes that are in the coffee. You'll tell them that Kenya has these floral notes, so eat a blueberry muffin while you drink Kenyan coffee. He said to know all of these things, and then give a demonstration to your district manager, and then they would grill you with questions, and if you passed, then you were certified as a coffee master. You graduated from the obligatory green apron that every Starbucks barista wears, and you received a black apron that said Coffee Master on it. Now, you know I love the black apron. I love wearing black. I'm a freak. My identity and my status changed. I became a Coffee Master. I was clothed with the coveted black apron, and my status changed. And that's a picture of what happens with our baptism. Our baptism is an outer sign of how our faith has united us to Jesus. That we are in union with him. Baptism is an outward sign of our new status. The sign of our baptism signifies something. The sign of our baptism points to something. It points to our union with Christ, that we are in union with him. We have put on Christ, Paul says, in our baptism. And that means, like I said last week, that when God sees us, he sees Jesus because we are clothed with Christ. We are clothed with his righteousness. And that's exactly why when Martin Luther doubted his salvation, he said that he would remember his baptism. Now, Luther was baptized as an infant, so we hold him up as being one of these great leaders in the Reformation, but you put that in the crock pot of your mind and you let that simmer for a while. Luther said, when I doubted my salvation, I went back to my baptism, and he was baptized as an infant. We're Baptists here, but that's what Luther did. And that's also why Martin Luther said that every time we wash our face, we should remember our baptism. Luther is saying, when you doubt that God loves you and your sin and your guilt is overwhelming, remember your baptism because your baptism is an outer sign that faith has united you to Jesus, that you are in union with him. So Luther is saying, every time you wash your face, every time you wash your hands, every time you take a shower, remember your baptism. Remember that you have put on Christ, that you are clothed with Christ and that you have been united with him. Now, Luther also said this about baptism. In an emergency, if there is no water, then use beer. Those of you who love Luther, you got to know that he loved beer a lot. And he was okay. He said, if there's no water, beer, milk, or brandy will do the trick. So, I don't know what you do with that. Luther loved beer. I don't know what you do with that, but I guess it's just another reminder that God welcomes the freaks and lunatics of this world into his family. And those last three words are especially important, into his family. Our union with Christ as individuals means that we are united also with other believers, that we are a part of the covenant family. 
We're united to other believers, whether they be goody two-shoes who don't drink beer or freaks and lunatics that do. That's what Paul is saying. Look at verse 28 and 29. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Now remember, the Judaizers are trying to divide the church, the Galatian churches, along racial lines. They were forcing the Gentile Christians to choose sides. They were saying, stay the way you are. Or come over to our side and be circumcised, and then you can really be a Christian. You can remain a Greek, or you can become a cultural Jew. Which side are you going to pick, Galatians? The Judaizers were drawing boundaries inside the church. Jews on one side, Gentiles on the other, and this was killing the joy of the Galatians, which is exactly why Paul is writing this letter. By promoting circumcision, the Judaizers were excluding women. Circumcision was the sign of the covenant in the Old Testament, but now the sign of the covenant is baptism, which women can partake of. In the Old Covenant, on the eighth day, you would bring your little boy to the temple, and he would be snipped. Or if you were a foreigner who came in, maybe a Moabite, you would come in, and as an adult male, you would be circumcised, and your little boys would be circumcised. In the Old Covenant, circumcision was the sign of the covenant. But now the sign of the covenant is baptism which everyone can partake of. Under the gospel, we are all equal. We are all Abraham's offspring and heirs according to the promise. So there is this new unity that comes with our new identity. This new unity comes when we are united with Jesus. We are united with other believers. We're one. We're family We're baptized into the covenant family of God. And just like any family, there is unity, but there are differences. This means that it's okay to have cultural differences. This means that we must have gender differences, meaning male and female. We need these. God is creative. He made different people, different genders, different cultures. And the gospel's beauty is seen when we come together with all of these differences and we are united. That means we should never require someone to be something that they are not. For instance, we should never look at the cowboy and say that he must wear a Hawaiian shirt and flip-flops in order to belong. Let the cowboy be a cowboy. Let the redneck be a redneck, for crying out loud. And let me preach with my southern accent, y'all. I'm an Okie. I don't want to be a Californian because y'all are weird to me. You don't like sweet tea. And you put salsa on your barbecue. What? I'm supposed to put barbecue sauce. That's just weird. So go ahead and email me. I don't care. I will let you be you and you let me be me and let's let one another be one another. There are differences. God made males to be males. He made men to be men. 
So I'm okay if the NFL refs want to have pink flags instead of yellow flags for Breast Cancer Awareness Month. But as I heard someone say the other day, it's hard to take an NFL ref seriously when he throws a pink flag. Because typically men don't wear pink. What Paul is saying here is keep your distinctions, but let there be unity. Let men be men. Let women be women. And let each culture and each race here be who they are. That's when the church is beautiful. When we are all faithful to who God made us to be within our races and within the various cultures that exist within each race. The church is made up of warthogs and white trash and freaks and lunatics. And all of these are true of me because I'm from the south where we have hogs and white trash and lots of freaks and lunatics. My best friend in high school was a pig farmer. Lots of freaks and lunatics in the south. And yes, California has its share of freaks and lunatics too. Can I get an amen? Amen. You said it, I didn't. God welcomes the freaks and lunatics of this world into his family. And God welcomes all of us into his family if we repent of our rebellion and we trust in Jesus. Kim Crandall put this on Twitter last week. She's got a great book called Christ in the Chaos. It's a great book for mothers who are wondering, are they making a difference in their families' lives when they're all messed up sinners. I recommend ladies get it. Men, you'll enjoy it too. Christ in the chaos. But this is what Kim said. The law is meant to freak us out. It's true. That's why I'm such a freak when I forget the gospel. We're freaks when we forget the gospel. We're lunatics. We're crazy. We're out of our mind because in the gospel, God is saying, come to me. I am a fountain of living water. Come and drink and drink and drink and be satisfied. And what we do, we show our insanity. We show how crazy we are when we say to God, no, thank you. I will go stick my face in the sewers and the toilets of this world and try to drink and find satisfaction. That's what we do when we run to the world, when we run to sin to be satisfied. When we go to the law and say, I can obey you in order to be made right with you, we show that we're freaks when we turn away from the good news. Flannery O'Connor's short story, Revelation, captures the unity of the gospel well. We are all like Mrs. Ruby Turpin. Ruby had slaves that she looked down on. She was their master and she thought she was better than them. She thought she was better than the white trash people in her hometown. She was a good, upstanding lady with manners and disposition until the law exposed her one day. We all struggle like Mrs. Ruby Turpin. We struggle to be welcoming to others, to those who are different from us. 
And it takes a vision of the gospel to let us see the unity that should characterize the church of Jesus Christ. It takes the work of the law to burn away our virtues, to burn away our self-righteousness, and it takes the gospel to see that it is only the perfect life of Jesus, his work, not our works, that make us right with God. The good news of the gospel is what Mrs. Ruby Turpin needed, and it's exactly what she saw in that vision. A vast horde of souls were rumbling toward heaven. There were whole companies of white trash, clean for the first time in their lives, and bands of Negroes in white robes, and battalions of freaks and lunatics, shouting and clapping and leaping like frogs. And bringing up the end of the procession was a tribe of people whom she recognized at once as those who, like herself and her husband Claude, had always had a little of everything and the God-given wit to use it right. She leaned forward to observe them closer. They were marching behind the others with great dignity, accountable as they always had been for good order and common sense and respectable behavior. They alone were singing on key, yet she could see by their shocked and altered faces that even their virtues were being burned away. Let's pray. Father, the law comes and burns away our virtues. It burns away our self-righteousness that we're all so prone to have shape our lives, God. There's a level playing field when the law shows up because it exposes us as lawbreakers and rebels and sinners. But there's a level playing field when people trust in the gospel that we are all sons and daughters of the king the warthogs, the freaks, the lunatics. We are family, united to one another because we have been united with your son through our baptism. God, would you forgive us for downplaying the differences, for looking down on the differences? Would you help help us to embrace how different we are, embrace other races, embrace other cultures so that the gospel would go on display, so that people would see our unity and be inquisitive and we would tell them it's because of Jesus, because we're united to him, that we can be united to one another no matter how different we are. So God, come and do that work in our hearts today, God. Do it for our good. Do it for our joy but do it most for your glory, that the glory of your son would go to the ends of the earth to draw people through the gospel message by the power of the spirit, different people from different races, different ethnicities, people that wear different clothing from us, 
that smell different, that talk different, that look different. God, would you do your work of gathering the nations together from every nation, race, tribe, and tongue that we would be united to one another because we're united to your son. Do that, we ask, here in this church and in this city for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.